They did well, didn't they? Um, thank you to all of the kids uh, for all of your work on that song and um, a special thank you to Ed because that was uh, hours and hours and hours of video editing to um, put that together for us. Well, this morning we continue working our way through Exodus and this morning we pick up the story on the other side of the Ten Commandments. The foundation of God's law has just been given to Moses as the Ten Commandments and now God is about to provide for him a point-by-point, case-by-case expounding of that law. And what follows in the next three chapters is mostly a series of examples practical scenarios that demonstrate how this law would be played out and applied to everyday life. You know, if this happens, then do this. If anyone does this, then this must happen to them. And formally, this part of Exodus is known as case law because it provides specific examples or cases of how the law should be applied. And in just the same way, we have various acts and regulations within our law today that cover all the various ways that the law could be applied. And this part of Exodus is a real mixed bag. Sometimes we're kind of amused by what we find here. If a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, He is guilty of bloodshed. So we wonder it's okay to kill a thief in the night, but not if it happens during day. Sometimes we're kind of confused by what we find there. If there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And we wonder, Are we supposed to apply that today? Or what about do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk? Why not, you might ask. And we're going to come back to some of these a bit later on, but they're just examples. Sometimes we're just plain embarrassed by what we find in this part of Exodus. For example, If a man beats his male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies as a direct result, he must be punished. But he's not to be punished if the slave gets up after a day or two since the slave is his property. And I think if most of us are honest, we'd probably rather that references to slavery did not appear in our Bibles, let alone references to beating slaves. And we'll come back to that one as well a bit later on. But modern day case law, the the law that we're bound by uh, in our society today, is also an equally mixed bag. And so in just the same way, sometimes we're amused by what's in there. Did you know that in Victoria there is a law that prohibits you from tying your goat to a vehicle? There is, you'll find it in Summary Offences Act 1966, Section 8C. Or, for those of you that own carts, wagons and drays, are you aware that you must refrain from driving them through a public area unless you have your name and address printed legibly on the right-hand side 
in lettering that is at least 25 millimetres long. You'll find that one in the Summary Offences Act of 1966, Section 8B. Or, and this one's very important for those of you that run your own businesses, are you aware that in Victoria, according to Section 70C of the Crimes Act of 1958, which still applies today, corresponding or doing business with pirates is illegal and carries with it a punishment of up to 10 years. So here's my free advice for those of you that are dentists out there. When someone comes in asking for a golden tooth, always check first. Parrot on shoulder, patch on eye, no can do for the golden tooth, not worth risking 10 years in prison. Sometimes we're confused by the laws that we have. Did you know, for example, that in South Australia under Section 48A of the Summary Offences Act of 1953, it is illegal to advertise a reward for the return of lost or stolen property where the advertisement indicates that no questions will be asked. So if I lose my dog and I want my dog returned and I pose an advertisement with her photo stating reward $500 for information leading to the return of missing dog. No questions will be asked. We just love her and want our dog back. In South Australia, such an advertisement would constitute an offence and it carries with it a penalty of up to $500. Sometimes we're also just embarrassed by what's in our law. Lovers of potatoes, you must stay well away from Western Australia because in Western Australia, believe it or not, it is an offence to possess 50 kilos of potatoes. Yes, it's true. Under Section 22 of the Marketing of Potatoes Act of 1946, selling, delivering, purchasing or taking delivery of 50 kilos or more of potatoes is illegal unless you are a member of the Potato Corporation or an authorised agent. And to that I say, very good thing I have never lived in Western Australia as I would be a recidivist offender under that law because in my former role as a, a plant pathologist with the state government, I spent several years working with the potato industry doing massive field trials and I would have broken that law countless, countless times, bringing bags and bags and bags back to the laboratory from our field trials for assessments to be done. Fortunately, I have never lived in Western Australia because the penalty for breaking that law is $2,000 for the first offence and $5,000 for each subsequent offence in addition to amount of up to twice the value of the potatoes. So it would hardly have been worth my while going to work. All of these laws, no doubt, made sense at the time that they were introduced. They don't make a lot of sense anymore. Carts, wagons and drays, for example, were once a familiar feature on Melbourne's streets and laneways, but by the 1960s, they were an oddity. And I guess very few people would have had experience in handling them. And the rule that I quoted relating to carts, wagons and drays is part of a group of rules primarily aimed at maintaining control of animals on public roads. And so I guess ensuring that carts, wagons and drays had the name and the address of the owner 
printed clearly on them, related to tracking down an offender should a vehicle be left unattended and get out of control on a public street. The crime relating to the no questions asked comment on the notices relating to lost and stolen property is related to just who has the right to prosecute for a crime. And in spite of what you may think, or in spite of what you may have seen on crime shows on TV, in all states of Australia, the decision to press charges is always at the state's discretion. It is not the victim's decision. In, relating, in relation to selling potatoes in Western Australia, we can only assume that that law was to protect the commercial interests of the states or of the members of the Potato Corporation. And of course, the pirates referred to in the 1958 Crimes Act didn't all get around with parrots on their shoulders and patches on their eyes and golden teeth. These regulations governed a whole range of crimes that could be committed at sea. Now, I have to admit, when I read the 1958 law, I thought it made perfect sense. Corresponding or doing business with pirates is illegal. Of course it is, because it's a breach of copyright. But the words changed over time. And what we think of now as pirates is not what uh, the act actually covered at the time. Our use of the word has taken on a completely different meaning. So modern readers of this law, like myself, are open to completely misinterpreting it. In context, all of these laws made perfect sense, but out of context, they're pretty amusing and open to being completely misinterpreted. Case law in Exodus is no different. It was written within a context, and so it must be interpreted within that context. You don't need to be a genius to read these laws and to conclude that they were written in a cultural context that is not our own. Do any of you own a servant or a slave? And I'm not talking to the children here who might think that their parents are servants or slaves. What about a bull or an ox or even a donkey? Have you got one of those? Or a vineyard or a field? Do you own one of those? Not many of us do. Therefore, knowing what to do if your bull gores someone to death or your donkey falls into an uncovered pit or your grazing livestock stray into someone else's field, or someone else's sheep dies under your care, is probably not going to be immediately relevant to you. The cultural context into which these laws were given was that of an agricultural economy. And in that context, knowing God's will for your day-to-day -day living included knowing how to deal with all sorts of these issues and concerns that one would likely to become across in carrying out all of your day-to-day -day duties. But for us, knowing what to do when our bull gores someone's female slave or our donkey falls into an uncovered pit is about as useful as a fly screen on a submarine. So what are we to make of these laws? What relevance do they have for us? And we're going to get to that question in just a minute. But before we go there, I want to take a look at a few of the specifics of some of these laws 
and try and establish what they were saying to the people of the time before we look at what they might be saying to us today. And so we're going to begin right at the, back, at the beginning of the, the text and the passage that we have for today. And what you'll find there are some words that are harsh enough to choke on. Exodus 21.2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you for six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free for nothing. And after all that we've been through with Israel coming through the book of Exodus, you would have to wonder at this point, hang on, wasn't the whole purpose of Exodus to redeem the Israelites from slavery? So what's going on here? Is God saying slavery is okay as long as you only enslave one another? Well, according to Leviticus, slavery is not okay. Leviticus 25, 39 to 43 says, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner, and he shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he'll go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, and they shall not be sold as slaves. So if enslaving a fellow Hebrew is forbidden, why the need to regulate it? And it's here where we need to be very careful not to assume that because something is regulated in the Bible under case law, God approves of it. That's not always the case. And that was exactly the assumptions that the Pharisees made when they asked Jesus about divorce. And they told Jesus that Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. And how did Jesus respond to them? He said to them, in Mark 10, verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. And then he goes on to explain to them what God intended in Christian marriage. Just because something is regulated in the Bible does not mean that it's approved of. This passage, therefore, probably has more to tell us about the state of the hearts of the Israelites than it does about anything else. That having recently been freed from the burden of slavery, they would even consider enslaving a fellow Hebrew. What it also teaches us is God's concern for the one who was to be enslaved. Under God's laws, and this is where God's laws differ dramatically from anything else that was around at the time. Under God's laws, slaves had rights. They were to be granted freedom. No questions asked. Freedom after serving seven years. Wives of slaves had that same right. Slave girls could not be sold to foreigners. And if a slave girl married an Israelite, she would have the same rights as an Israelite daughter. 
Masters who mistreated slaves would be punished and slaves who were permanently harmed were to be freed as compensation for any harm caused. Slaves had rights and while we cringe at the very thought of God's people seeking to own another human being, we must recognise these laws for what they were in context. In context, what they were was a monumental leap forward, was a paradigm shift that would set God's people apart from all others. And we see this concept of justice, compassion and social responsibility permeate many, many of these case laws. There's concern for due compensation when property is damaged or when injury is done. There is concern for women, both those sold into slavery and those who are free. And there is great concern for foreigners, for widows, for orphans and for the poor. To these, God offered special protection in the form of a curse on anyone who takes advantage or tries to mistreat them. Even the animals are not beyond God's concern for they are included in the command for Sabbath rest. 23.12 Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work so that your ox and your donkey may have rest and the slave born in your household and the alien as well may be refreshed. You see, we read these laws from our place and our place is this side of the cross over here. And we read these laws and we look at them and we say, that's a backward step. And it is. From our position, owning slaves and treating them in that way is a backward step because we're this side of the cross. And Jesus said, there's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free. So we've worked towards that. But this side of the cross over here is a completely different story. And so you need to look at from which side of the cross uh, the Bible is speaking at that particular time. So the laws around slavery from this side of the cross represented a step in this direction. For us, it's that way. For them, it's this way. It's not all the way, but it's certainly heading in that right direction to what is the Bible's ultimate, which is all one in Christ Jesus. So the final specific law that I want to have a look at today before we move on is perhaps to us the strangest of all. Exodus 23, 19. The second half of the verse reads, Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And we know that this command must be important because it appears three times, twice in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy. But what does it mean? I first stumbled across this command back in my early teens when I began babysitting for a lovely Jewish family most weekends. I spent most of my weekends in their home on an evening and over time I grew to love them very much and grew to respect their culture very much as well. But on that first night as they showed me through the house and instructed me in what they wanted me to do with the children, 
I remember standing there completely bamboozled in their kitchen as the mother instructed me in the regulations of how the kitchen worked. For there were different places for dairy and meat in the fridge. There were different racks in the dishwasher. There were different chopping blocks. And there were restrictions on the sink and how that should be used. And I spent the first night sort of slightly terrified that I might do something terrible and bring a catastrophe upon this poor family because I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Eventually I realised that the kids were all over it and they knew exactly what to do, so I mostly just left it to them. But unbeknown to me, I'd had my first encounter with Exodus 23:19. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, why not, we say. What, what does that mean? Is there something wrong with cooking in milk? Or is there something here that perhaps we just don't understand because we're this side of the cross and we're not living in the culture that was that side of the cross? Now, if you ever come across a verse like this that is just plain difficult to understand, you will never go wrong spending time examining the context. So what are the contexts in which this verse appears three different times? Well, both times in Exodus, it appears in passages relating to annual festivals. Specifically, it follows an instruction regarding bringing the first fruits to the house of the Lord. So we might suppose that perhaps it has something to do with the way in which Israel celebrates festivals. And indeed, if you dig a little deeper, you will find that the most popular theory around this passage proposes that boiling baby goats in their mother's milk was perhaps something that the Canaanites did in their ritual worship of idols and that therefore Israel would be strictly prohibited from doing this in their worship of Yahweh. It's feasible, it's a reasonable proposal, although the evidence for such a Canaanite ritual is not unequivocal. What about the Deuteronomy passage? Well, the same command can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21, and there it's not in context of festival celebrations. It is sandwiched between laws about not eating things that have died naturally and the annual tithes. So the only thing that is common to all three of the contexts in which this verse appears is the bringing in of offerings. In Exodus, it is the offering of first fruit. In Deuteronomy, it is the annual tithe. In both the Exodus passages, the emphasis is on bringing the best of what you have from this year's harvest. It's the best you have. In other words, you don't mix what you had last year, the leftovers, to make up what you've got this year so that you can keep more of this year's over for yourself because it's the better quality stuff. In Deuteronomy, the emphasis is on setting aside the tithe each year. So very similar emphasis. You're bringing this year's, not the leftovers from last year. You're bringing the best that you have to God. So those that prescribe to this sort of theory propose that don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk is a Hebrew idiom. 
a saying that all the people of the time would have understood, but whose meaning can't be clearly deduced from the individual words. In much the same way as if I was to write, don't beat around the bush, all of you would probably understand what I mean. You would conclude that I mean, just say what you really mean, get to the point. But readers in a few hundred years time, reading what I'm saying, might be just as bamboozled as we are over this particular law about boiling goats in their mother's milk. And they might wonder why we were forbidden to hit the ground around a bush. If this is a Hebrew idiom, then it's proposed that the mother's milk represents the previous generation and the young goat, the current generation. So do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk might mean don't mix the old with the new in terms of your tithes. The implication would have been obvious. Bring to God only your best. Ultimately, we don't know without any doubt what this particular law referred to exactly. But it provides for us a perfect reminder that the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. We must therefore be constantly aware of where we stand in that timeline relative to the people for whom these laws were written. And we need to keep that in mind as we seek to work out how we're going to implement them or what we take away from them to apply to our own lives today. So the question remains, how do we apply these laws today? What are we to do with them? Should we just sort of skip over them as something that was an interesting bit of history, relevant back then, but irrelevant now? Well, the Apostle Paul would argue a strong no. He says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. What do these laws teach us? They teach us first about the heart of God, the heart of the God that we love and serve. And since our God does not change, these are timeless truths. They teach us that God is a God of justice and of mercy. They teach us that if you have done wrong to someone else, you should take responsibility for it and ensure that the other person is compensated. They teach us that God is concerned for the welfare of all persons, but especially for the poor and the marginalised. They teach us that the people of God should be noticeably different to the world around them because they are the children of God. Now, these laws governed how Israel were to live together in community. So when God tells them to look out for the poor and the vulnerable, he means primarily the poor and the vulnerable within their community. That was how they were to function together in a society. There should be no poor within their society because they're taken care of by the others who are able to do it. Israel's equivalent today is us, the church. And these laws have a lot to tell us about how we should function together, not so much in the specifics of each individual law, but in the intent of them. Israel was to be different from the surrounding nations and the one thing that would set her apart from all others is how the people treated one another 
within community. These laws speak today in a general sense to our relationships within the church, both locally and in the church worldwide. And we can see how the early church applied them in the book of Acts. Within the community of believers, there was great concern for the poor and the vulnerable, so much so that the book of Acts records there was not a needy person among them because their needs were met by those who owned land and houses and could sell these to contribute to the welfare of others. That is how you get people to take notice of the church and to want to hear the gospel message, not by the church becoming so like the outside world that we almost blend in with all of our slick performances and appealing programs, but by being so radically radically different to the outside world on the things that matter that people can't help but take notice. That's what these laws teach us. They also teach us that worship is a serious matter, not to be undertaken lightly. Bring your best before God. Don't serve him up the leftovers. Finally, they teach us that transgressions must be paid for. And in that respect, of course, they point to Jesus in whom the law is fulfilled. So after laying out the terms of the covenant, which is the law that the people had to obey, there's a final section there in chapter 23, verses 20 to 33, which contains the curses and the blessings, which were a familiar part of a treaty agreement in the ancient Near East. People would have known what was being put before them here because it was familiar to include what would happen if you obeyed and what would happen if you didn't. There's also an extended statement there about how God will go before them, driving out the nations, and he'll send an angel to guard them along the way. Now, time doesn't permit us to dwell in that part this morning because I want to get to chapter 24 before we close because chapter 24 is just beautiful and it's probably the high point of the entire book. God invites Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders to come up the mountain to him. And early the next morning, verse 4 tells us, Moses builds an altar at the foot of the mountain and he sets up 12 stone pillars, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sets the young men about the task of making the sacrifices required for the offerings to the Lord. Moses takes the blood from the sacrifice bulls and he sprinkles half of it on the altar. And then he reads the book of the covenant to the people and they respond, perhaps a little too quickly, but they respond, we will do everything that the Lord has said, we will obey. And then Moses takes the other half of the blood and he sprinkles it on the people with these words, which I'm sure you will find familiar. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. This is the blood of the covenant. And I'm sure I don't need to highlight what this is pointing to. We read very similar words every month when we share the elements during our time of communion together. 
and we're reminded of the new covenant made not with the blood of sacrificed bulls, but with the blood of our sacrificed saviour. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu and the 70 elders go up and they see God. Listen to their description. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and they drank. They saw God and yet all they can describe of him is the pavement that was under his feet. So I would suggest that perhaps they saw something of him, but only as much as maybe a mere mortal could take in of the awesomeness of the glory of God. They saw his feet or maybe just the pavement under it and they were awestruck. We began last week with the thunder on the mountain and the Lord descending on it in fire as smoke billowed up and the whole mountain trembled violently. And we conclude today with Moses entering the cloud to receive the law written on tablets of stone while the Israelites below look up at the glory of the Lord, which appeared to them like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Can you think of anything else like that in the Bible? Can you think of another time when the Lord, accompanied by supernatural phenomenon, descended in the form of fire to write his law? I'll give you a little clue. There are many, many similarities that can be drawn between Sinai and Pentecost. In both cases, God descended, accompanied by violent supernatural phenomenon. Earth shaking and thunder at Sinai and a violent wind at Pentecost. In both cases, the glory of the Lord fell as fire. In both cases, the people received a gift from God. At Sinai, the Torah. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. In both cases, the law was written at Sinai on tablets of stone, at Pentecost on the hearts of men. And in both cases, God's people were never the same again. At Sinai, Israel became a nation and at Pentecost, Christianity was born. Now, some in addition will argue that Both events happened exactly 50 days after Passover. Sinai, 50 days after the first Passover in Egypt and Pentecost after the sacrifice of Jesus, our Passover lamb. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that the giving of the law happened exactly 50 days after Passover. But over time, the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot as it is known, came to be associated with the giving of the law. And originally that festival marked the beginning of the wheat harvest, which happened seven weeks or on the 50th day after the Feast of First Fruits, which marked the beginning of the barley harvest. And that feast occurred two days after Passover. And on both of these occasions, the first fruits of these crops were brought 
to the temple. So the timing is roughly right. It's roughly 50 days. But by AD 70, the temple was no more. It was destroyed by the Roman forces led by General Titus. And in AD 31, the then Emperor Hadrian, who had promised to restore Jerusalem, reneged on his promise to restore Jerusalem and rebuild the Holy Temple. And that ignited a wave of Jewish nationalism. And so led by Simon Bar Kokhba, the Jews rebelled and they liberated Jerusalem in around about AD 132. But the Romans mounted a fierce counterattack. Bar Kokhba was killed, the Jews were decimated. And the extent of this decimation was mind-blowing. 50 fortresses, 985 villages were said to lay in ruin and 580,000 Jews were killed. Many, many more would later die from the starvation that ensued. Israel was defeated and dispersed. Their homeland lay desolate. Jerusalem was eventually rebuilt as a paganized city with a pagan temple erected on Mount Zion. Can you imagine what that would do to the national consciousness? So the Sanhedrin convened in AD 140. There was nothing to harvest. There were no temples to bring offerings to. And so rather than let this holiday die, they decided to divert its focus from agriculture to a historical event. And the rabbis suggested that Shavuot was the day that the Torah was given. And whilst the Bible doesn't explicitly state that, both events did happen in that third month, so the timing is at least roughly correct. And so over time, Shavuot has come to be known by the Jews as the time of the giving of our law. And it commemorates the covenant that God made with his people at that time and the writing of the law on tablets of stone. But for us, it points to the new covenant that we have in Jesus and God's writing of the law on our hearts by the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Our old rebellious hearts are replaced by hearts that by the Holy Spirit desire to do God's commands, not because we have to, but because we want to. For all of the similarities that there are between the giving of the law at Sinai and the writing of it on hearts at Pentecost, it is the differences between these two events that I think are more important. At Sinai, the people stood at a distance. They trembled with fear. They begged Moses not to let God speak directly to them lest they die. At Pentecost, the believers were gathered together and God came via his Holy Spirit, not from a distance up high on a mountain, but he came to a house and he came to each one of them individually and settled on them. No one was terrified no one panicked and none of them were ever the same again. From that day forward, all believers would have the law of God written on their hearts. 
How do we know we have that law written on our hearts? Have you ever done something wrong and just felt convicted that it was wrong? Felt convicted of your need for forgiveness? That's the law written on hearts. When our own sin becomes a source of much sorrow and the pursuit of holiness becomes our desire, then we can be sure that God's law is indeed written on our hearts. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, for Christ who is the fulfilment of the law and has taken the punishment that we deserve under the law for our crimes against you, God. Thank you for writing your law on hearts by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that he dwells in each one of us. Continue to work in each of us, we pray. Create in us clean hearts that abhor sin and seek to pursue holiness. May we as your community in this little part of the world, Lord, be marked as different by the way that your law manifests itself in the way that we treat one another. Amen. May the Holy Spirit of God have his way in each one of us as we go out into this coming week. Amen.